Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, Happy New Year. Grab a stool. Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. We're back with live editions of the podcast here in 2020. We hope you enjoyed our six-part look at the best, worst, and and most uh, awards, uh, rising stars, fading into oblivion, best ideas, worst ideas, our scathing uh, appraisal of the media in 2019, and of course, all the way down to person of the year and uh, turncoat of the year, as well as our fearless predictions. If you haven't had a chance to hear those, please go back in the archives, wherever you get your podcasts, and listen to those. I think you'll find them highly entertaining. Uh, Jim, Happy New Year to you. Um, Folks will probably be pretty happy to know that we don't really have any plans to talk about the Jets and Bears anytime soon, since the regular season's done, and uh, their odds of making the playoffs evaporated a long time ago. I guess the the good news for us, just to show you where we are sports-wise, is that uh, you're probably pretty happy the Patriots didn't get a bye, and I'm pretty happy Ohio State's not playing for a national championship. So uh, that's where we are. On to politics. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Greg. I guess I guess you'd call that the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> but uh, that's where we are. I, so the Bears were 8-8, eight and eight, right? Yes. Right, so we were 7-9, baby, in your face. Yeah, we are the pictures of mediocrity. Anyway, NFL playoffs still to come, national championships still to come. So hopefully you all uh, had a great uh, Christmas and, and New Year's and uh, travel went well and there aren't too many uh, contagions ravishing your homes. Uh, we had a couple people down with the illnesses over the past couple weeks. Knock on wood, I'm still going strong. Jim, hopefully the same for you. But uh, let's talk about uh, all three good martinis today. And uh, let's start with the good news that obviously could have been a whole lot worse. And it actually uh, went down, I believe, on New Year's Eve. And that was the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq clearly organized by Iran. The media would love you to think it's just random protesters or even better, random mourners, kind of in the same uh, regard that al-Baghdadi was an austere religious scholar. Uh, These are people whipped up by Iran following U.S. airstrikes on terrorist uh, positions uh, in in days just before that. Uh, We saw pictures of the uh, parts of the embassy on fire. In the end, though, no personnel hurt. Uh, The U.S. rushing troops and other material to the scene. So efforts to make this Trump's Benghazi were clearly overblown since uh, there was no loss of life and our system worked well. But reinforcements are now there. And that's also good. Uh, Trump also putting Iran on notice. So, Jim, not the greatest news, but the fact that it could have been a whole lot worse and clearly wasn't is good news. It is. Uh, You can characterize this as a cautiously optimistic good martini. Um, I do wonder if, because uh, apparently you know, the Iraqi Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi uh, asked everybody to the, the protesters or, or the uh, the militias to withdraw, uh, and they did not. It was very clear: we don't we don't follow you, we don't follow your orders. You're not in charge of us. Then the uh, Iranian lead, leaders of these Iranian-backed militias announced, you know, basically the order came down from Tehran. Okay. Now we withdraw. And they did. And I kind of wonder if this was all a demonstration of power on the part of the Iranian regime to say, hey, look, you guys might think you control the streets. You might think America controls the streets of Baghdad. No, no, no. We we control the streets of Baghdad and we can turn on these protests and we can turn off these protests. Uh, And when I say protests, I mean violent assaults, including uh, uh, mortar fire and such. Um, whenever we want. Uh, so in that, by that standard, it's rather ominous. On the other hand, this could have gone much worse. 
no loss of life, no serious injuries, undoubtedly a very frightening moment for the U.S. personnel over there. But uh, considering where it looked like things were headed, things, but you know, things calmed down and backed down pretty quickly. Um, the withdrawal of these militias was conditioned on the Iraqi parliament voting on a full withdrawal of U- all U.S. forces. If only these folks would understand how much Americans don't want to have their forces in Iraq. We'd really rather not be there, Iraqis. Uh, we just would like to make sure that, A, uh, ISIS doesn't come back. We know you guys did an awful lot on the ground during the fight against ISIS, but we you know, need to make sure that they're not going to have a resurgence after we leave, just like the last time. Uh, and then the second one is we need to make sure that our personnel, our embassies, our diplomats, uh, aid workers, everybody, all other Americans on the ground in Iraq are not being targeted by other groups. If we can get those two security guarantees, there'll be really no need for any, uh, you know, any you know, U.S. military presence beyond the standard uh, Marines who are around to protect a U.S. embassy. Um, so it's, it's on you guys uh, if you guys want to do that. But uh, my, my guess is you'll probably see another debate in the Iraqi parliament about asking, you know, uh, requiring U.S. forces to leave. They've done this before. It has not come close to a majority. Maybe this changes it a little bit. I don't know. But uh, so far, considering how badly things could have gone very quickly, uh, I'll count this as a good martini and a good outcome for Americans, at least for now. Yeah. And I would say stupid on the part of the Iranians, because haven't they been begging everyone to ease up on the sanctions? I'm not sure this is the best tactic to make that happen. So it uh, could be good to to keep the screws tightened on uh, the Iranian regime, too, who still have the protesters in their own streets. So uh, hopefully it'll be yeah. a t- terrible year and for again, the Iranians. You, want, you, know, you know, Greg, the Trump administration is not likely to play ball with the Iranians on sanctions. But if you want to get the Europeans and, and everyone else to kind of uh, look at you a little more sympathetically, don't do this. <laughs> you probably make it much tougher for anybody to say, ah, OK, they've been on good behavior lately. Let's loosen these sanctions a little bit. Uh, I suppose they could be trying to intimidate the Americans uh, or the Europeans. But uh, again, I think the U.S. has more leverage over Europeans than the Iranians do uh, under these circumstances. All right. Moving on to domestic politics now for Martinis two and three. Again, both of them good. And Jim, uh, every time one of these Democrats drops out, ultimately it's good because we can at least say, well, that person's not going to be president over the next four years. And uh, for the most part, that's that's excellent. Today's candidate, who is no longer part of the race, is Julian Castro, the uh, former mayor of San Antonio, former HUD secretary. And uh, Jim, it's the very beginning of the, the year, and I'm guessing his fundraising numbers were not very good. We know his poll numbers weren't very good. He hadn't been on the past couple of debate stages. And so uh, the handwriting been on the wall for Julian Castro for a very long time. He tweets out today, it's with profound gratitude to all our supporters that I suspend my campaign for president today. I'm so proud of everything we've accomplished together. I'm going to keep fighting for an America where everyone counts. I hope you'll join me in that fight. So, Jim, let's talk for a minute about what Julian Castro actually accomplished in this campaign, because I believe the list is rather short. He did, uh, and I'm grateful for this, uh, prove that Beto O'Rourke knew nothing about immigration policy, schooled him pretty good on that in one of the debates. But the actual Castro moments that we're going to probably remember for a long time are two. One is this one in a debate where, in an effort to pander to as many different demographics as possible, actually vowed to protect abortion rights for trans women, meaning biological men. I don't believe only in reproductive uh, freedom. I believe in reproductive justice. What that means is that just because a woman, or let's also not forget someone in the trans community, a trans female, uh, is poor, doesn't mean they shouldn't have the right to exercise that right to choose. And so I absolutely would cover the right to have an abortion. 
And under the adage of if you swing at the king, you better not miss, uh, he went after Joe Biden in one of the debates, basically accusing him of uh, having a faulty memory and kind of losing it. The issue was their competing plans for a public option and whether or not Biden would automatically enroll them or force people to enroll if they wanted the public option. Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy. You're forgetting that. And that was the end of the Julian Castro campaign. He just didn't realize it for a few months. So, uh, Jim, uh, I'm sure it's shaking you to the core that uh, we won't be looking at President Castro next year. You know, um, when Julian Castro, most people probably noticed him when he was announced as the keynote speaker at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. Uh, he was mayor of San Antonio at that point, and he was a, you know, by, by most standards, a fairly obscure figure. Uh, this keynote address is usually kind of given to the rising star in the party. Uh, Obama had done it before. Bill Clinton had done it before. And, you know, by that point, this set off a flurry. So I decided to start digging into him, start looking into him. And a lot of people started calling, oh, he's the Latino Obama and then all that stuff. And um, he's always been an intriguing figure, but I've always felt like the, the hype to substance ratio was not quite what it ought to be. Um, and I read these profiles and they, they all kind of sounded the same. And they, oh my, one time he visited the White House and Obama mistook him for an, an intern. That's how young looking he is. <laughs> you know, um, you start seeing the same anecdotes over and over again. I am actually, I, I feel a small, you know, molecule of sympathy for, for Julian Castro because I think you can look at him as a figure who did everything he thought he was supposed to do to be a successful presidential candidate. And it turned out that what he had been told, what he needs to do, is not actually what you need to do to succeed. Um, Clearly, as you mentioned, he ran left, and I don't think that actually works as much. Look who's who's still standing, right? Um, Buttigieg, who's technically a centrist, I think you and I would dispute that a great deal, but who clearly has not tried to run as far to the left as humanly possible. Um, Klobuchar, right? I mean, there are a whole bunch of folks who went way, way left. And I think it turned out that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren pretty much had that lane covered. There just wasn't a lot of oxygen for somebody who wanted to uh, be the most leftward candidate in this field. And I think he drastically overestimated uh, the appetite uh, uh, for, for how you know, deep progressivism, hard left views, however you want to characterize it, in the Democratic primary. Or at the very least, he overestimated how many voters there were in that category to go around. Um, the other thing which I think is worth noting, and I wrote a profile of him, I, I looked it up just about a year ago today. I called him Mr. 2012 um, because he was the candidate of the future and he became the candidate of yesterday by the time the cycle began. But I don't remember him ever being the, the candidate of today, so to speak. It's <laughs> like his moment totally passed him in a blink. Um, and one of the aspects that I figured, well, I guess you got to take him seriously is he was the only Latino candidate in this field. And we keep hearing that Latinos are now the big burgeoning growing demographic that every, you know, political party and every candidate has to figure out some way to appeal to and cater to. Well, funny thing happened. Latinos were not that interested in electing Julian Castro. 
Latino Democrats were by and large happy with Biden or Sanders or Warren or one of the other candidates. And I went back and I checked the polling. There wasn't a ton of polling that broke it down by ethnic demographic. But when they did, Castro was coming into the same numbers as everywhere else. So 1%, 2%, 3%, some 0%. In Florida, Castro was getting 0% of Latinos. Now, by the way, you know, the name Castro, maybe not an ideal sales pitch amongst Florida's Cuban-American community. Uh, Julian Castro has no relation to uh, Raul Castro or Fidel Castro. But, no, you know, if the whole cornerstone of this campaign was, hey, we're going to mobilize this growing demographic that is increasingly important in Democratic Party politics, it just didn't happen. Um, and the other thing I kind of noticed, and this will come be written in a corner post in the near future, just the observation that Biden, Sanders, Warren, you could probably even throw in Bloomberg. Hey, these are all well-known folks. They've been on the national scene for quite some time. I think the Democratic Party might be losing its taste for these young, fresh face where, you know, yeah, they haven't done much, but boy, they can inspire. You know, Castro, by and large, with his speeches, said all the things that Democrats wanted to hear, and it just didn't work. Uh, So I kind of think that maybe this is a Democratic Party that's getting a little more cynical is the right word, but um, not as easily sold on the next big, fresh face to come down the pike. And so... uh, uh, and also, finally, I think his attack on Biden really was out of line. It really, you could hear the oohs in the crowd and people who really thought he was um, going beyond the pale and just kind of being obnoxious. And uh, here he is. It is, you know, he put it, he, he tried his best and he didn't succeed. And as Homer Simpson said, there's an important lesson from that. The lesson is don't try. So, Jim, when uh, Kamala Harris dropped out and uh, Cory Booker didn't make the debate stage in December, we got a bunch of think pieces about how the stage was too white. Now that Julian Castro is officially out, even though he hasn't been in the past couple of debates, uh, we're going to get more of these because the only Latino candidate's out? And uh, Probably. More, more discussion. And, and I think the other interesting thing that really kind of irritates Democrats, would really they, they could live with it if Tom Steyer wasn't up on that stage. And it's not just because Tom Steyer is a terrible candidate. It's because Tom Steyer is up there because he's a billionaire and he runs, a, you know, huge amounts of money on ads in these early states. And that's how he's qualified by this 2%, 3%, 4% threshold. It's not that, you know, uh, it's, it's not that Tom Steyer is a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. Cory Booker doesn't have the money to do that. Julian Castro doesn't have the money to do that. And as I wrote in today's Morning Joel, look, I hate to say this, guys, running for president requires you to raise a lot of money. I know people say it's unfair. I know people say, oh, it's so hard. Look, Buddha Edge did it. Um, you know, last cycle, Ben Carson did it. Ted Cruz did it. Marco Rubio did it. Every year, a bunch of candidates go out and they persuade lots of people to give them money. I know Julian Castro thinks that he's the most inspiring figure that ever walked the face of the earth. But if you're really that inspiring, people would probably volunteer to give you money. That happens in politics. And you know, that's the first prerequisite. And whether or not you think it's fair or whether it's nice, or whether you think it leaves out some good candidates, that is a real requirement. And you can't whine against it. You just have to deal with it. And by the way, a lot of things associated with the presidency are difficult, and you just have to deal with it. So, uh, you know, I, I can't deal with these candidates who keep whining about how hard everything is. Yeah, the presidency is hard. So, you know, happy trails, Julian Castro. All right, moving on to good martini number three. And I'm actually going to mention two things here before we get to our actual third martini. Uh, Jim, first of all, speaking of billionaires running for president, are you tired of uh, every video you click on starting with a Mike Bloomberg ad yet? (laughs) It it is that coupled with the fact that, you know, as part of my campaign duties, I generally, I either subscribe, I either get the fundraising emails, or I've wondered if sometimes campaigns just take their press email list and add it to their fundraising list in hopes that we will just suddenly, hey, I'll give this person money. Um, so 
I'm getting multiple emails from every campaign every day. <laughs> and every subject line is some variation of, like particularly from the Sanders campaign, let me explain. Well, I mean, obviously something's gone terribly wrong or it doesn't look good or the light is fading or we're losing our will to live. It really gets kind of grim sometimes, Greg. <laughs> And uh, we're seeing the fundraising numbers for the Democrats in the fourth quarter. Uh, first, we saw Buttigieg, 24 million, pretty impressive. Uh, Yang, I think, was around 16 million. Gabbard's down around three or four. But Bernie Sanders, of the announced candidates so far, we haven't heard from Biden or Warren yet, uh, 34 million uh, from a quarter that literally started on October 1st when he had a heart attack. So uh, turned out to be a much better quarter at the end than the beginning for Bernie Sanders. What do you make of how competitive he is now with the, with the money he's got? My sense is if you're raising 10 million a quarter, you're doing okay. You're going to have the resources you need to at least compete in those big four early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, and South Carolina. And all these candidates have this idea of, I'm going to win Iowa and I'm going to springboard to, you know, all of a sudden a national campaign organization will just magically manifest based upon all the excitement of that. Um, but all that, of course, assumes that you do reasonably well in these ones. And oh, by the way, to foreshadow a piece I've got coming up in an era. Uh, later today, all the estates require a 15% threshold to get any delegates. So if you're at 14% or below, you walk home with nothing. You can insert the Alec Baldwin uh, routine from Glen Gary, Glenn Ross here. You know, 14% or less, you get nothing. You go home with, you know, empty handed. Um, so if you've got those kind of resources, most of these announcements, you know, Yang, uh, Buttigieg, Sanders, look, they're all they're all in this to win this. But if we hear something from Klobuchar and it's small, I don't think that, you know, Tulsi Gabbard got $3 million, and I'm sure that's nice for her. But, um, you know, you're not, you're not winning any delegates with, with numbers like that. Sorry, Tulsi fans. No, she's uh, surfing up in New Hampshire. She'll be surfing in Hawaii if those numbers don't <laughs> change real soon. Uh, Jim, our real third good martini is Trump's numbers. Uh, $46 million for him in the fourth quarter. And as the New York Times reports, cash on hand of one hundred two million dollars and uh, i remember being uh everybody being blown away by the amount of money obama was uh raising and, and keeping on hand but uh trump obviously with a financial advantage here uh how big of an edge is it when uh, it's such a polarized political climate at first let me begin by saying you could overstate this right trump spent less than hillary clinton last time you throw out the amount that he raised and his affiliated super PAC raised and the Republican National Committee, compare that to the Hillary Clinton campaign, the Hillary Clinton super PACs and the Democratic National Committee. It's not quite two to one, but the margin wasn't that far. Hillary spent considerably more and, of course, ended up falling short. Um, so another big question is, what are you spending your money on? Uh, we've seen a lot of organizations that you know, spend all their money on TV ads in the final weeks of the general election. Uh, when, oh, by the way, early voting starts in some places like Minnesota 34 days before Election Day. They're running their ads after people have started voting. That's generally not a, you know, your best way to spend your money. Uh, I'm not a big fan of you. I think if television, you're going to spend money on television ads, it better be, you know, really eye catching and, and gripping and, and, you know, standing out from a lot of noise. And you're probably better off spending it sooner rather than later. Um, but having said that, it's better to have more money than to have less money to realize you're not going to run out of it. What apparently, what allegedly, what the Trump campaign says that they're doing, now whether or not they're actually doing it or how effectively they're doing it is another story. But they say what they really want to use their resources for is identify people who did not vote for Trump in 2016, but who are likely to support him. That there were a bunch of people out there who were intrigued by him, Trump curious, you could say. And that they, uh, but they didn't vote in 2016, either because they just weren't that motivated or they just weren't paying that much attention. Or my suspicion is a bunch of people figured he didn't have a chance of winning. So what's the point? 
the Trump campaign can identify those, that's when a state like Minnesota starts to look uh, winnable. That's when a state like, you know, Trump only lost New Hampshire by about 5,000, 6,000 votes. He could win that state. Um, now, some other states that he won are looking a little tougher this cycle. Arizona comes to mind. Um, but, you know, if, if you're putting your resources into identifying potential voters and going out, contacting them and mobilizing them, that's where a financial advantage can mean a lot. Now, look, the Democratic nominee is not going to lack for money. All these people who are donating for the primary generally have the ability to donate again for the general election, up to $2,300 under federal law. All the super PACs are going to be super active in this. The Democratic Party, you know, the DNC is doing terrible financially, by the way. Um, so that's one other financial advantage on the Republican side. But, you know, all in all, if, if Trump loses in 2020, it's not going to be because he and the party couldn't raise enough money. And that's, you know, that's some that's a feather in their cap as we head into 2020 for real now. Jim, February 3rd is only 32 days away. That's the first actual votes in 2020. And so I can uh, just envision that this is going to be a really calm, sane, (laughs) non-apoplectic year for politics and our podcast. So I'm really, really looking forward to all of it. Greg, do you think they decided to make presidential election years leap years just to give us one extra day of us? (laughs) Anyway, great start to the year, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Give us a nice review on iTunes. And be sure to join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.